This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by This Is Not Church podcast and the letter F. And you. (laughs) (laughs) If you've made it this far, my name is Nat Turney, my brother John Turney, and I co-host This Is Not Church, the podcast. And this is sadly the level of discourse that you can expect to find if you tune in every Monday when we drop new episodes. But all joking aside, John and I see this as as an opportunity for us to address issues that we don't think are addressed nearly enough inside of evangelicalism. So LGBTQIA plus issues, BIPOC issues, social justice issues. We like to talk to a broad variety and range of people and really try to find places of commonality for everybody. So check out the podcast. Every Monday, our episodes drop. Wherever you stream podcasts, you can find us. Remember, this is not church. And to that, John says, Peace. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. We are so very happy that you decided to... uh, to check out this episode because there is so much great stuff going on. We are in the middle of our What is the Bible series, and we are going to continue to jump into that. Um, but before we do, we're going to do some quick introductions. My name is Keith Giles. I am the uh, author of the Jesus Un series of books about deconstruction and reconstruction. Yes, it is. And the brand new Solar Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And I am joined by the incredible, the amazing, the wonderful uh shonda december katie and sometimes matt say hi hi everyone this is katie valentine i'm the author of sex slavery and self-control and i'm your witchy woo woo christian and i love to talk about the bible so this is a super fun series for me what's happening everybody this is december rose your blackest friend and (laughs) i am also the author of (laughs) the church can go to hell and i'm just so excited to talk about the word of god on the day aren't you I am Shonda Ja, author of Rebels, Despots, and Saints, uh, and I like the fact that we're going to get to talk about all three today. Yes, 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 and I am sometimes Matt, excited for another episode. This is, we've we've recorded more than 150 episodes, but as per uh, actual title, this is episode 150, so kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, they said it wouldn't last. Or they said it shouldn't. I think some people said it shouldn't I think last, they said but... they, it shouldn't last. I don't know who said it won't last, but they said it shouldn't last. But, uh, but we, we are, became we are... more polyamory than we ever thought we would. That's right. <laughs> yes, we showed them. Is, yes. We, <laughs> we, I don't know who them are, but I, there's probably a few thems out there that... They're still saying it shouldn't last. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure they are. So, But here we are with another episode. And before we get into the topic today, before we meet, we meet our wonderful Heretic of the Week... I gotta, I gotta get Katie her endorphin fixed here by by offering some stone thoughts. If the Bible's so important and it's mandated by God and dictated by God and all that, does that mean the people who put it together are also dictated and mandated by God, and the people who chose those people are mandated and dictated by God? And does that also mean the fact that we don't have like the first Corinthian letter? We just we just don't know what that is, or the response to Paul. The first letter we have in Corinthians is like the third letter in the exchange. Was that also mandated and dictated by God? It's just so damn wonky. 
I love that. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's sort of like, let's think about the, the canonization inspiration process and the negative. God was like, oh no, that first letter, hell no, that isn't going into my book. <laughs> I feel like a very inappropriate Monty Python reference. Like somehow every sperm is sacred in this mandated and dictated <laughs> <Yeah>. process. Like, <laughs> I kind of agree. Yeah, how far back do we take this, right? Yeah. yeah. Like... <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Like life begins at conception. That's how far back you got to go. Wow. So like, <laughs> I go all the way back. I oh, did not my. intend, I did not realize I was joining a political show. Uh, oh, oh, really? Oh, yes, you did. Really? <laughs> how long have you been with us here? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, man. Yeah, it gets a little crazy, right? When you start trying to attach um, God's will and oversight over every little thing that happened. Uh, we're going to get into that in our topic. But yeah, it's uh, it gets a little crazy. Like that, it's that whole thing about God God preserved his word uh, throughout history in this process of canonization and all that. It's like, yeah, but which one? Because it seems like that was a moving target, right? The, which version? Because there's different versions. And we're going to get into that today. But yeah. Um, it doesn't really work. You can't really apply it because it's like either that or God is like on purpose. Like, no, I want these people to have this one, but I want these other people to have this other one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a little weird. I, I, to me, it reminds me of, you know, when you were a little kid and you were trying to get your head around eternity mm-hmm. and you were like, but something had to happen before that. That's and right. before that, my son this is very much how day. this conversation feels to me. It like reminds me of being a little kid and trying to get my head around eternity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Ah, thank okay. you, Matt, for always. Thank you. No, you're my, you're muted. I, I was. Oh, I am? no, Matt. Sorry, Matt was oh. muted. Matt was talking. I thought for some reason it wouldn't let me unmute. Satan is trying to keep me from talking. No, I was going to say it just ha- it helps to understand the <laughs> stone thoughts if you are stoned yourself. <laughs> I would say that. That's the that's the problem. Um, thank you, Matt. But because I feel I like was... Matt, you are Katie's drug. Yeah. I was gonna say I was feeling like a little low energy and like that's always peps me up and gets my <laughs> whatever was whatever was wrong it becomes solved with stone thought so thank you Matt I could you could ha- make a CD happy to help. I'd buy it I'd happy buy it yeah I would I would play that for conversation starters in car trips no problem all right everyone so we, we've had some stone thoughts we've talked about being mandated dictated we already talked about sperm and conception I think there's nowhere else to go except to our lovely, wonderful, provocative heretic of the week. Y'all will love him. And stay tuned. That's where we're going right now. It's the heretic of the week. Hi, my name is Jim Matulski, a.k.a. hashtag the homo heretic. <laughs> Hi, Jim. <laughs> That's maybe one of the best lead-ins I've ever heard. Jim, I'm so excited to get to hang out with you. And uh, let me start out with our first question. Why would someone call you a heretic? Well, why wouldn't they? I mean, I I feel like I'm an early adopter to heresy. And it's been something I've embraced heartily ever since I learned the concept. Even really, I was a hashtag high school heretic. uh, (laughs) When as a Catholic boy, I used to sneak off to the Unitarian Church. Just because I I loved, um, you know, reading their hymn book because it was so full of transcendentalism and uh, re- re- revisions of hymns and non-traditional language and 
uh, they had even hymns in it that had the word heresy in it. Wow. So wow. Uh, I, I really have always always felt much more comfortable on the heresy side than the orthodoxy side of things. The parties are better. They yeah. are better. Oh, and yeah. it's, it's way more interesting. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, anybody can be orthodox, but not everybody can be a heretic. I'm not sure ever, anybody can be orthodox. I'm not sure I would do it very well. I can't do it anymore. I'll tell you, I did it for a while, but I it, can't it helps do it to be. It helps to be born into it, I think. Yes. Uh, that's true. I think you're right. Yes, I think so. Heresy yeah. is, ch- is chosen. It's special. <laughs> It yeah, I, I, I was adopted, so I, I like to think anybody can be born into a family. But, you know, it's more special if you're chosen. I so I, I feel that way about heresy, too. It's yeah, unless there's somebody standing up saying, this is the only right way to be and think. You can't have a heretic, right? So we need the people that that are the ones saying, we're the only ones who know the right way. And then the rest of us can be the heretics. Well, I was born with strong left-wing tendencies, and I keep moving even further to the left. So you're drifting. I, I think it's, it's important, uh, heretical drift, as it's called. Yes. And I do think that um, there is heresy on the left, too. And I like, being oh, yeah. I like being the most heretical heretic in the room, even in a left-wing gathering. Even the heretics think you're a heretic, yeah. Yes, why not? You know, it, It's got to be always in motion, because the enemy of heresy is stasis. Oof. Yeah, I like that. So are there any specific things like um, just give us sort of like the top three things that um, let's say if you were in a room full of of people who thought they had it all figured out, why, what would you be saying or doing or, or, or ideas would you be sharing that they would think this guy is a heretic? Well, in Christian circles, it's actually not hard to be heretical because Christianity, unfortunately, is so easily fused with certitude and yes. with rules and everything contradictory to what, what I think Jesus uh, embodied. Uh, so, you know, just in the church I grew up in and uh, in almost every faith, even still, just to remind us of where the world is at on the issue of sexuality, much less homosexuality, yeah. just being able to say, I'm a queer Christian. And I've said that since high school, um, yeah. puts you, put you on in, at least numerically on the heresy side. You know, oh, yeah. we in you know we tend to some of us are certainly I have tended to hang out professionally in circles where it's it's okay to be gay, but uh, that's not always been true, and it certainly wasn't true for many generations, and it wasn't even true in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, and even right now, you know, the mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, many of the Protestant churches, and all the Evangelical churches are still uh, very divided on this issue. And the United Methodist Church, which when I was in seminary was considered liberal, mm-hmm. is splitting as we speak over the issue of, uh, really, over the issue of homosexuality uh, and whether or not gay people can even be baptized, much less be ordained. So wow. just the simple affirmation, I'm a gay Christian, as God intended, and uh, I I can, is enough to put me on some people's heresy side. Now oh, yeah. I don't I don't really think it's that big a deal uh, to me. It just it's what comes natural. But um, I do th- I I have to remind myself that most places uh, that alone is enough. And then we can layer onto it. Um, I think that uh, and I really believe this that there's nothing intrinsically important about divinity, whether it's Jesus or God or Holy Spirit. If we're talking in Christian circles, 
that needs to be expressed in what we use the construct of masculinity to define. So mm. if it's got to be a he, then it isn't essential to divinity. Uh, yeah. And I think that's enough to, you know, kind of get get under the skin of many Orthodox Christians and most, really. Mm-hmm. Um, even the liberal ones are, they draw the line. They'll use inclusive, so-called inclusive language by degendering language. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's an important, I, I think it's an important conversation and an important exploration too. I'm not trying to minimize it, but in the end, God is still male and Jesus is still male in most essential conversations for the majority of Christians. And I think it so misses the point of what's essential about Jesus or God or Holy Spirit. Even the word God is yeah. um, is a male word. So when we go through our hymn books or we go through the Bible and take out so-called masculine pronouns and put God in instead, well, there's, that's not progress, I don't think. Uh, but we have this sort of polite construct or this gentle person's agreement that, oh, well, that's inclusive. Well, I don't think it is. It's, it's curious. It helps us deconstruct one way of thinking about God, and that's important. But um, just try and say goddess in most uh-huh. Christian churches and see what happens. And that even the most even... progressive churches, right? Yeah, yeah. You started yes. saying praying to the and goddess. Say, yeah. Yeah. Now, I say this as a person who uses goddess language in worship in a United Church of Christ congregation on a regular basis. So with explanation. And that doesn't even get at what it means to use male and female binary language, you know, mm-hmm. God and goddess. There's a whole nother exploration around uh, around gender and divinity language and humanity language. You know, mm-hmm. can we call God they, them? Um, can we call Jesus they, them? Um, wow. Or can we call Jesus, can we imagine Jesus saying, hi, I'm Jesus and my pronouns are he, him, or she, her, or they, them? Um, it depends on the day and, and it depends on the context. Um, if we can't, then we're not done exploring hmm. the full breadth so of who Jesus can be. So yeah. that might be another area in which mm-hmm. I would say I could <laughs> think? I, I get my heresy creds. But like I said, you know, a heresy, it's something we, we're kidding about. But really, it's, a, it's something that should prod each of us. If we think we've got the whole truth and and the conversation's complete, and we and we find any self sort of self pride in being a heretic, then that becomes its own kind of orthodoxy. Hmm. It it, it yes. just becomes a way to measure: Are we constantly growing? Are we constantly evolving? Uh, are are we always open, 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 open? Because hmm. let's think about what the opposite of heresy is. It's orthodoxy. It means unchanging, right? Yep. Um, certainty. It's, yeah. It means certainty. Yeah. And what what in life or in death is certain or complete? Nothing. You know, nothing of interest. Nothing alive. Uh, what, <laughs> yeah. What 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 could be more boring than the same thing over and over and over? I don't Seriously. get it. So I don't know. Would you ask for a third? I, I could. No, I that's could do others. Yeah. That's awesome. I, and actually, I think what I'd be really interested in. I've. I think somebody needs to write a biography of your life because you've done so much in the movement. But I wonder, this is where you are now. And you said you were born kind of curious and challenging and um, left of center. What was it that got you from where you started to where you are now? Well, you know, I, I think at heart, I am a religious person. Uh, it just plays out differently for me. 
than it might for others. But it is essentially at my core to be religious. I love community. Mm -hmm. I love ritual. I love learning. Uh, and I love the senses. Um, all of these things, and I love reading. Um, all of these things are religious pursuits for me and mystical pursuits. So it's those very things that, uh, that I learned as a child in some ways also broadened me to want to continue seeking more. Well, uh, and was, was any of that to do with, um, you were born or you were, you were raised at least in, um, in a Catholic family in Detroit. Are there ways that that shaped where you ended up? Cause you've got this life of, um, LGBT activism, racial justice, activism, gender justice in the church, right? So pushing within the boundaries of the church, as well as in the larger, um, in the larger arena, did did where you were born, when you were born, have anything to do with where you are now? Well, social location is essential but not determinative. This is my right. liberal belief, right? We have to be aware of it and look at it and find ways in positive and negative ways that it it influences us. But it, I, in the end, I don't believe it it determines us. I'm not an essentialist in that regard. So I was born a Catholic uh, and raised in a Catholic home. And that came with habits and traditions. Um, and the, the only shortcoming in it really, or the principal shortcoming was, this is the one way, this is the only way. Mm. Um, but I do think that it also instilled a deep passion in me to believe in community, yeah. gathering weekly, being with people that are different from us, uh, yeah. not different enough in the church I grew up in, but still there was difference there even. Mm -hmm. um, we gathered together at a table each week and shared communion. Now it took me a while to figure out that who could come and who couldn't yeah. and who was included and who wasn't, but that yeah, was a yeah. gradual awareness. Um, and it took me probably till I was 10 or 12 before I realized that what I was hearing from the pulpit was not just the stories of Jesus, if you will, uh, and the stories of Mary, who I liked better uh, and still do <laughs> another heresy point. Um, not enough attention to the mother, I think, um, in the Protestant Church, in the in the in the Catholic Church, or the and the Protestant Church, forget it. Oh, oh my yeah. God! They, what, what mother? What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. She's far more interesting. I mean, the nuns did used to tell us when you want something done, who do you who do you talk to, your father or your mother? And wow! So I you know, uh, I think we're too dismissive of the religion that is taught alongside the religion. You know? Yeah. Um, there, there's a it's a it's a broader palette than I think that we sometimes, you know, the unofficial religion, the religion of the people. Um, and there's yeah. a lot of that in Catholicism. There is popular devotion that is not official Vatican doctrine. Um, and I was always intrigued by that. I loved the processions, the statues, the litanies, the things that were frowned upon as almost vulgar, even popular expressions, but that said something about people's faith, you know, uh, and those things have always fascinated me. Um, and, and that's where faith lives in people's lives, how, in their actual lives. Yeah. So yeah. I, I love the things that are suppressed or forbidden or discouraged because there's usually something there worth examining. You only suppress what is very powerful. Right. Now, I mean, that's not a universal principle, but I do think that it's, it's worth looking at why are things prescribed or why are things proscribed. Uh, 
And uh, as a Catholic, you learn that. And then also as a young Catholic, a survival skill growing up in the Catholic churches, when they're talking, start doing something else because it, it might damage your spirituality to pay too close attention <laughs> to what the priest is saying. But at least in a Catholic church, there's a lot to do. There's a, there are books to read. There's music to listen to. There there's stained glass to look windows. At, yeah, there's windows, exactly. you know. Yeah. Now, I did grow up in a Catholic church that met in a gymnasium uh, um, with guitars and no organs. I mean, as a young gay boy, it was it was really homophobic, you know. Uh, uh, it was it was an aesthetic <laughs> offense. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I did I did overcome that, um, and I do think that's what drew me to Episcopalianism uh, when I got older. Because, and this is a little classist, but it's true. I did find in Episcopalianism uh, a beauty that was lacking in, you know, in the gymnasium, shall we say. Sure. Uh, yeah. And also a kind of preaching and intellectual life that I have to say was missing in uh, the kind of suburban Catholicism that I grew up with. I say that with respect and affection, but it is true that, you know, I, if I were to attribute one factor to uh, how I embraced heresy and grew in heresy it's education mm -hmm. um, the older i got um, and when i went to college especially and was exposed to people who were different from me living in new york city uh mm -hmm. the um having the kind of intellectual and cultural stimulation uh that was available to me there as opposed to a suburb of detroit um, that made me more radical. That made me uh, more heretical. The world is not circumscribed in the ways I was taught to believe. And that was true mm -hmm. in religion. It was true in politics. It was mm -hmm. true about race and racial justice. So many things opened up for me. And I, I've never understood how education has an opposite effect on some people. You know, it, it, for me, it opened me up and made me even way more liberal and way more progressive. Liberal was a word we would use 50 years ago yeah. in a positive way. And uh, that was the effect it had for me. It didn't make me lose my faith, which was what my grandmother was afraid of. You know, she said, oh, my God, if he goes to that school, Columbia, he'll lose his faith. Um, and I never lost it. It just opened uh, yeah. up. Yeah. And, and I think an example of that, how did I get to be a heretic? Uh, I yeah, there you go. I was my, gonna, my, I was gonna my ask you. Yeah. <laughs> my college professors. So as a Catholic, I will say this. We heard the Bible talked about, but we didn't exactly read the Bible. You know, right. I'm sure we had one in our house, but you know, you wouldn't dream of reading it. Um and so I was interested in religion though. So and and I'm not being facetious when I say that. That wasn't how we learned about our, our faith. Uh, the, the Bible wasn't. That just seemed very Protestant. Um but when I got to college, I was really interested in religion. So I took courses in the history of the Bible. Um, and uh, uh, my introduction to New Testament professor was Elaine Pagels. Uh, <gasps> oh, my was, gosh. Now, oh, remember, I'm so jealous. I'm, I'm, so I'm jealous. reading the Bible for the first time, really. With Elaine Pagels. And, Damn. you know, she taught us about, you know, the four Gospels, or the uh, five Gospels, you yeah, know, Matthew, Thomas. Mark, Luke, John, and Thomas. She was yes. fresh. This this was the 1970s. She was fresh out of Nag Hammadi, oh, and yeah. she was, you know, handing out uh, Xerox. They weren't even Xeroxes. They were dittos, right? Of, yeah. Um, uh, documents, the Gospel of Thomas, wow. things like that, that we got. And it was, it was taught to us as equally important literature of the yeah. first century Jesus movement, yeah, and that was how I was taught the Bible, 
well, of course, that was ruined for orthodoxy, but it, it made a great deal of sense <laughs> to me. Um, and uh, I had other great professors at Columbia. Carol Christ is another early pioneering feminist theologian, and she was my introduction to religion professor mm. uh, my, my first semester. And, uh, and she's a great, uh, she passed, but she is a great um, scholar of feminist religion and, and goddess worship in particular. Um, and then I had her the second semester for uh, uh, women in Christianity or something like that. Uh, and I became a women's studies minor uh, mm -hmm. at a largely, well, at a men's college, but there was a men, women's college across the street, uh, Barnard. And so I took all these women's studies courses. And this is how I learned my Christian religion from an academic mm -hmm. standpoint. And it, it taught me so much, you know, um, reading a book. I, I was remembering the title earlier today. Um, the Prophet from Nazareth by Scott Morton Enslin, published by Schocken Books, which was a Jewish uh, press, academic press. And uh, studying Jesus from a Jewish academic perspective, which is a very different way. This is how I became acquainted with the Prophet from Nazareth. Uh, I remember in that book, uh, I was talking with Bob Crocker, who I uh, was in school with at the time. Then we ended up being lovers for 25 years. Um, and one of the quotes from the book that we still remember is, there's not enough material in the Gospels to write a decent obituary about Jesus. And that was kind of shocking at the time. You know, um, <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh. it was not that there wasn't material worth Sorry. studying. Sorry. Yeah. But uh, it's not the same thing as taking that as fact or as history. Mm -hmm. So learning to read the Bible as first century literature in context, or, you know, at least the New Testament, and reading the Old Testament not as a prelude to the New Testament, but as, you know, a collection of books written over 800 years that has its own integrity and not really related to the New Testament, particularly, although the people who wrote the New Testament were familiar with the Old Testament. I mean, of course, we that was the language we used at the time, Old Testament and New Testament. We wouldn't use that today. But, uh, and so I'm old, but that, that reflects the language of my training. But you know, I had professors like that, and that intellectual training uh, had an influence on me as I went on to do ministry and activism. Uh, I had Cornell West uh, as a uh, junior in college teaching a class called uh, The Black Church and Marxism. And he was a graduate student then at Union Seminary. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jim, I'm, Jim the... I'm so jealous, man. Come on. So it, Lane Pagels it, and Cornell West? Damn. Right. <laughs> at an impressionable at an impressionable yeah. age, it made a big difference for me. Um, uh, my women's studies, my most profoundly influential women's studies professor was a professor named Hester Eisenstein, and she uh, taught a class on feminism and socialism and socialist theory. And that also had a profound impact on me. And I read Emma Goldman's autobiography, uh, Living My Life, when I was 19. And this, so other people, like, they remember when Jesus came into their hearts you know, <laughs> at a revival. Emma Goldman danced into yours. I, I, exactly right. So this is my favorite quote that I have on my wall. Okay. Those those who had read queer books, had dreamed queer dreams, had committed queer acts, and had even been queer in the face of death. People out of the wow. ordinary, those with a vision, have ever been considered queer, yet they have been the sanest in a crazy world. And she talked about in her... Wow. Uh, autobiography living my life meeting people that who were also homosexual but mm -hmm. she had a definition of queer uh 
from her activism in the late 19th and early 20th century that wasn't really even about sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what I fastened on to as queer identity, you know, mm-hmm. and that that's the lens through which I saw religion. And it was also at that time, I mean, you know, here I'm a little young gay guy coming out and I, mean, I had come out in high school. Uh, I've always been a little ahead of the curve. So, um, <laughs> and when I got to New York, it was gay, gay heaven, really. This was the seventies. Uh-huh. And so that became part of my education. And I would say what probably made me a heretic was my absolute clear conviction that I got from feminism that, you know, I saw my Christianity through the lens of my homosexuality, mm. not wow. trying to figure out how it was okay to be gay and Christian, mm-hmm. how to be Christian Christian first, and then how to fit that gayness into it. Um, and I started going to a gay church, the Metropolitan Community Churches, the MCC Church, it's yeah. called. And uh, we weren't trying to justify being gay and Christian. You know, all the other mainline churches, the Protestant churches, the lib- so-called liberal churches, were trying to have commissions and studies, trying to unlayer what's the meaning of homosexuality in the Bible. And that scholarship is important, and I followed that. And we, and we know because of that scholarship that what people think is in the Bible, and I, sh- I just want to point out my Bible because I love oh, my Bible. You, you say, I, yeah, that's beautiful. This, that. this, is, this is a real heretic's Bible because you can tell it's well-read. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, what's, what it's, people think is in the Bible about homosexuality is not what's there. No. Just like what they think about a lot of things is not there. And mm-hmm. But we didn't care what the Bible said or not. Like, it's, we, uh, what made us heretics <laughs> was like, so what if it condemns homosexuality? Here we are. We're Christians. We follow the life of Jesus. We believe in Jesus. But, right. um, you know, the Bible's wrong about 10,000 things. Why pick that? You know, right. it's like, yeah. oh, no, no, that's wrong. You know, <laughs> really? Okay. Um, you know, the Bible teaches that. The Bible mindset. I wouldn't even say the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach anything. It's just uh-huh. a darn book, for God's sake. It's... Um, and we revere it because there's interesting things in it. But uh, you can disagree with it. What the heck? It's just a book. Right. And uh, it says women are property. It mm. uh, it comments on slavery without disapproving of it. Even though... For the most part, that's right. Yep. I think that's true. And, you, and I've heard yep. people say, oh, well, you're trying to apply... Uh, post-enlightenment construct to it you know it's like no there were slaves in the bible and i'm sure if you had asked the slaves for example how do they feel about the institution of slavery they would have had opinions you know um so it's who you ask right it's not is there even the question is there first century literature that condemns slavery no it doesn't matter it's wrong um uh and and we don't need to defend the Bible. It doesn't need apologizing for it. Just it needs contextualizing. And if you have a mature faith, you can say it's just wrong, 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 you know, about a lot of things. And I love this book, but there's like 10,000 things wrong with it. It's got a zillion, (laughs) a zillion design flaws. And the older I've gotten, the more comfortable I've gotten with it. So here's another heresy qualification. I had a student a few years ago when I was teaching at Pacific School of Religion, um, his name is Adam Dyer. He's a, a Unitarian Universalist minister now. And he rewrote the book of, I've heard it pronounced variously, Philemon or Philemon. Oh, yeah, Philemon. Philemon. Um, 
a letter of Paul, traditionally called Letter of Paul. Um, and it, I, I remember sitting in church thinking, I don't really want to preach from this darn thing anymore. It's so disgusting to me. Um, I can't use it. I can't even use it. But he wrote something else, a, 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 a replacement. So I finally, I ended up putting it in my Bible. I've got oh, Adam go. Dyer's liar, uh, and it's over the pages of the original letter. I mean, you can't see it, but... Oh, yeah, there you um, go, yeah. Just so you know, keep... our, our, our listeners are only listening. They can't see the video. Oh, you're but... right. You're right. Well, you can see it. <laughs> but I can Isn't see it. it cool? and it's it's yeah. really cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can still, I can still lift up the page and read the original text if I right. want. But I wanted to communicate something about the value of Adam's letter. His revision, not just revision, but his 21st century testament. Yeah. Uh, but keep it in the book of the Bible. Sure. And I've got pages and pages where I pasted other things into my Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, Walt Whitman, Patty Smith, Tony Kushner. Uh, yeah, yeah. Adrian Rich, all these things. It's it's placing in context, appropriate context, where revelation comes from. So is that heresy to say, uh, you know, God is still speaking or goddess is still speaking? Uh, you know, that's what the United Church of Christ says. But we don't always implement it. Everywhere I've worked or preached, I always have a contemporary lesson mm-hmm. and a Bible reading side by side. Yeah. Or not. You're, a non- yeah. You you and I are on the same page, Jim. I I definitely somebody who think the canon was a bad idea, and uh, and in my mind, it's it's not closed, and God isn't finished. Whatever God wanted to say, He didn't say it all two thousand years ago, right? And so I I would do the same thing. I would add into mine like. Brene Brown and Rumi and Khalil Gibran and like so many other voices that are still, I mean, to me, it's still, you know, I can hear uh, the voice of God or the goddess uh, in, uh, in, in people even today. And even what you're saying, right? I, I think this is beautiful. Well, I have uh, on my uh, Twitter account and my Instagram, I have a hashtag, poetry is my religion. And uh, I believe that because there's something about even the medium of poetry that uh, lends itself to revelation. The spareness somehow uh, is a place. So, you know, for me, whether it's Adrian Rich or Audre Lorde or uh, I just got a new book of poetry by Saeed Jones yesterday. Uh, these are all ways that the divine is still speaking. Goddess is still speaking. God is still speaking. And wherever we have resistance, that's where we need to grow next. You know, so I remember preaching at the MCC church in San Francisco, where I was the pastor for 15 years during AIDS, and uh, talking with them during AIDS about how, uh, two things, I said, we have to be able to say God is gay, not in a limiting way, but any resistance we had to it was a measure of our internalized homophobia. And then talking about the scholarship that was also deeply influential to me by uh, James Cone and Albert Cleage, God God is Black, to quote, this was in the 80s and 90s when I was doing this. And when there was resistance to that in a gay church, uh, I said, this is where we have to push past or push through or learn about what it's saying about our own racism. You know, even the inability to say it and learn about it is telling us something about where we need to learn next. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Jim, this has been so awesome, man. Um, I, I want to, I, I hate to, I don't want to cut you off because this has been great, but uh, okay. I, I do want to find, uh, ask people who are listening to you and what you're saying, um, is there any way uh, they, how would they get in, a hold of you? How would they get in touch with you? Do you have a blog or any books or anything, <laughs> any, any other things you want to talk about that people can learn more about you and, uh, and the things you're saying and your ideas and, and stuff like that? So I'm, I'm currently the pastor of Peace United Church of Christ in Duluth, Minnesota, mm-hmm. uh, although I'll be moving to another church uh, in the new year. Um, but you can always find me on Facebook, Jim Matulski. There's Well, there are two, but I'm the one in, I'm the gay one. Okay. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, and it, you can tell one? the difference. Okay. I'm the gay yes. one. Yeah. Can you okay. believe there's two Jim Matulskis and we're both ordained? The other's That's a cousin funny. of mine. Yeah. That's funny. Um, and then I'm uh, on Instagram and on Twitter at at Rev Matulski. So at R-E-V-M-I-T-U-L-S-K-I. Okay. And on t- TikTok also at Rev Matulski. So I'm not hard to find. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I'm going to have to look you up. I'm, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I'm not on TikTok yet. But, um, but uh, yes, absolutely. Anybody who's on TikTok, go look up Jim and... Uh, yeah, this has been so great. I I wish we had another half an hour to talk because uh, there were so many things there. I think you and I are on the same page, but uh, I know a lot of our listeners are probably the same way, like, oh, this guy is cool. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your perspective and your story uh, with all of us here. It's been great fun. And, you know, it's find a, harder to find heretics up here on the iceberg. So because uh, <laughs> I'm here in Duluth right now. So uh-huh. uh, it's been fun to have uh have a little afternoon delight with uh, fellow heretics. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. We miss you down here in the warm. Well, I may be back. Yay. Fingers crossed. I always turn up again. So (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And you already did the pluggables, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, at Rev Matulski. Love it. Awesome. Um, Thanks so much for doing this, friend. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. All right. Awesome. Talk to you all soon. All right. That was fantastic. You all could tell from the interview, I'm such a fan of Jim's, and he definitely reminded us all of what is great about being a heretic. So, yeah, thanks so much, Jim, for being on. My man. Yeah. Now, this, sorry, go ahead, Keith. No, I was just, no, just, just going to say, yeah, it was, a, it was a great conversation. Uh, I know you knew him already, but I, I was very, very uh, honored to get to know him in that interview. So, yeah, great, great guy. Well, I'm super sad because I do know Jim and I couldn't be there. And I once managed a building where a church that Jim pastored rented. So we got to know each other. There's no what better way to get someone than through a falling down building. It's having true. to patch <laughs> roofs and <laughs> walls and <laughs> get critters and all that kind of stuff. And it, it was wonderful a to get to know. forged so. by fire. Yes. Yes. Literally. <laughs> yes. So... This has been such a fun series. I'm really excited about the subject we're taking on today, which is how did we get here? You know, the the how did we end up with the Bible that we have? Is there actually a Bible? When I was 20 years old, I was dating this lovely Catholic guy, and I was looking for a passage from the Bible, and I opened his Bible to find what I was looking for, and I was like, wait a second, there are books in here I've never heard of before. Uh, and that was the first moment that I was like, Oh, all these years I have been telling Protestants that they're being assholes for saying that Catholics have a different Bible than we do, but they were right. So 
how did we get the Bible we have and what are all of the Bibles that we get to uh, look at and learn from? Yeah, that's a, well, this, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I am glad you will be able to fix it for us in yeah. the next half hour. Yes, we're going to explain. <laughs> all will be explained. All will be revealed. <laughs> all will be revealed. We know in part, but by the end of this broadcast, you will know in full. <laughs> you will know in full, my friend. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, it is a, it is a weird question because, like you said, Shonda, there are Bibles plural, right? There, there's different ones. Um, there's the there's a Protestant canon. There's an Ethiopian uh, canon. There's the what we call, I guess, sort of the Catholic one, which includes a lot of apocrypha. Um, I know there's more than that. There's there's a handful of different ones uh, floating around out there, and they are not. They're all different, right? Um, Right. So it's like, what is it? 73 books in the Catholic Bible, 66 in the Protestant Bible. Um, Eastern Orthodox uh, have a different amount. I think it's, what is it? 80 something? I don't even know. Anyway, it's, it's, it, they're all different. So um, we want to talk a little bit, I, I guess, about why that is, right? And how did that, how did this process happen? Where, where should, how far back should we go? Well, should we just start in 1611 with King James or go further? <laughs> I mean, is is there any need to go farther back than that? I mean, that's when the Bible got started, right? Was Obviously, James, yes. In the that was the original. <laughs> See, inspired. I heard that Constantine screwed everything up, and that's where we should start. <laughs> yeah, but but then there's also the conversation too about um, prior to that, how early church fathers all had different canons, right? So, I mean, I, I would say that I mean the first canon that we know of in church history was actually created by this guy named Martian. Uh, no, before that, no one even attempted to say this, you know, these and not these books and not those books um, are canon. And so, uh, and of course, Martian was the, also the first heretic uh, for many people. So uh, there's that. But he was the one that sort of got everybody else thinking about this question and going, hey, um, we don't agree with Martian, but what do, what is the canon? Right. So uh, that kind of set in motion. The, the whole conversation. It took several hundred years, right, for the Christian church to land um, an agreement uh, sort of on like, well, these these are the ones we think are uh, are scriptural. Yeah. So it may even be helpful to define the word canon. So the ancient mm-hmm. meaning of the word is a rule, is in a unit of measurement. Hmm. And then that becomes applied to like a rule or a judgment or kind of a boundary um, that, you know, in which like we put di- different sacred, uh, different sacred text, And so there's different rules. There's different canons by Marcion, by, you know, some other people sort of attempted to say, these are the books that are authoritative, or these are the books that we live by, or these are the books that the apostles wrote. And there were a couple of those over the first couple of centuries, but not everyone agreed with them, you know, sort of obviously. And we're still not in agreement um, That's today. Right. Yeah. With sure. what makes these books. Um, so I know we went over this in the, I think, two episodes ago, but would it be helpful to kind of have a, a, a qu- really, really quick recap of like manuscript traditions? Yes, let's do it. Yeah, this is this is so exciting. So everyone just um, get get revved up, buckle your seatbelts. You're not going to be able you're, uh, to not just be riveted by this. So anyway, we have um, original manuscripts that were written at some point in time by like the author of Mark the author, you know, by Paul, by whomever in the New Testament. So I'm sticking mostly here to the New Testament. We don't have any of those. 
right? We have no originals. We have no originals. We don't, we don't know where those are. They are disintegrated, lost, whatever. But what we do have are copies of copies of copies of those. And we have 5,000 of those. And they range in size from like a Poses champ to an entire New Testament. Most, mostly a couple of pages or a couple of books. Um, lots of fragmented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those, those are organized in different various ways by scholars who know a lot more about it than I do. Um, so the very, very earliest manuscripts we have are maybe second century, like early, early second century. And most are much, much, much later than that. So we don't have, a, we don't have, because we don't have originals and all the copies differ at least slightly from each other. What we actually have is an edition of the Bible in Greek. And then that gets translated into English. So short story. There we go. And then we have a lot of other writings that aren't in the Bible that were being circulated also in early Christianity. Right. And then the, um, there we go. There you go. Thank you, Katie. That was awesome. Thanks, Katie. Um, I yeah. think that was much shorter so, and concise. That's what I should have said, you know, a couple of episodes ago where I think I was more rambling. Sorry about that, listeners. No, that was, no, I thought it was great. That was very, it was super great summary of the whole thing. Um, and the, um, so like, so again, some of the early church fathers, uh, I guess Martian kind of like had it, got an emotion like, you know, his, his whole thing was he only accepted Luke and a, a highly edited version of Luke that he called the Evangelion. He, he loved Paul. So he liked Galatians, first and second Corinthians, Romans, first and second Thessalonians, Ephesians, which he called Laodiceans, uh, Colossians, Philemon and Philippians. That was it. That was his, that was his short and sweet version. Right. But then, and it is worth noting. He wasn't a Martian. It's M-A-R-C-I-O-N. Yes, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He could have been a Martian. That's what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Point taken. Yes. We're going to combine this with our what if series. Ooh, and also could that be next week's stoned thought? (laughs) I was just going to say, what if Martian was a Martian? What if? And what if Origin was not an original? What if Origin was the origin? That's why he's called Origin. Oh, that's even better. Oh, shit. So uh, I just, I don't know, I find this, I find it fascinating though, that um, again, prior, you know, early on, like, so Irenaeus um, was one of the early church fathers. He, his list, his sort of canon that he held up was, was a 21 books and essentially it was the, the New Testament books that we have, but he didn't include Philemon, Hebrews, James, second Peter, but I guess first Peter was fine. Third John, he liked he only liked first and second John, but not third John and Jude. So he didn't include those. Um, Origin, early third century, um, had the same twenty-seven books as what we have, um, but there was there were disputes over Hebrews, James again, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and Revelation. Revelation was kind of always on the list of like, I don't know about this one. It was yeah, always half in, half that out. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Depending on who you ask, that one, that one was if there was one always sort of like on the edge of like, yeah, I don't know. It was Revelation for sure. I feel like that and James, right? And James, yes, exactly. I think we mentioned that last time. Um, but there was also something called the Muratorian Canon um, that was put together in uh, 170 AD. I don't know who did that. Probably some guy named Muratorian. <laughs> but, uh, or a group of people they called the Muratorian. For sure. um, but so, and th- that included... Uh, it was close. That was getting closer to what we have. It, it included the New Testament books that we have, except it also eliminated, or it didn't include Hebrews, James, again, First and Second Peter, and Third John. So, well, and it was sort of like it was the, a process. Yeah, yeah. and pr- probably the earliest 
groups, a group of things in the New Testament to be collected were probably the letters of Paul because right. early they were the first and the, the early first Christian one. communities yeah. were trading. They, they would make copies and then trade or, or gift uh, other communities with their letters. And so then early Pauling communities had a collection of letters that Paul wrote. Yeah. And that's probably why so many do survive. Yeah. Is it important to also mention, because I don't know if we've mentioned this uh, to this point in the series, but I was just talking to someone the other day and they, they made a big deal about the fact that, because uh, I had said something about the chronology of the of when we believe, like dating the books in the New Testament, and it blew their minds that like most of the uh, non, you know, uh, non-disputed letters of Paul came before Mark or Matthew or Luke. And they were like, what? Because they, hmm. you almost have this assumption that, well, when I open the Bible to the New Testament, the first book is Matthew, but Matthew was not the first gospel. It was We think most people think it was Mark. But so like that, and, and but then those those books came after most of Paul's letters yeah. that we have. So people don't think of it that way. They don't think of like, oh, the first writings were these letters from Paul, Galatians, First Thessalonians, Philemon, you know, these kind of things. Um, and then after Paul's writings, then we the gospels show up. And and that's that's a weird thing for a lot of people. They don't know that because it's not talked about a lot. So the reason for the ordering, um, the when they were putting together the order, they did agree that the Gospels were the most important because they record the life of Jesus. So that's why those right. go first. And Matthew got priority because people thought it was like the best. Um, and so the, the Gospels are in order of their importance for the early church. Um, and then the book of Acts, because it's the kind of bookend. And then the letters of Paul, they couldn't agree which ones were the most important. And they, yeah. they put all 13 that Paul is said to have authored um, in there. And so they're in order from longest to shortest. Yes. But people that's, why, that's why they're the order they are. But because Romans is first, that's probably why it gets so much priority. So the order actually mm-hmm. does really matter. I mean, it, it actually has informed what we read when. I have a it question. Um, I, in listening, it seems like a lot of the early canons left out the book of James. Is there any particular controversy around the, that particular that book? Yeah, it was too Jewish. It was too Jewish. Okay. I have so many things to say. Like, I don't have much to say about this chronology. I have so much to say about the ways in which anti-Semitism was baked into the way we use the Bible. Uh, We can get to that later, though. So, yeah, legit, it was, oh, we know how Rome feels about the Jews. We do not want to be associated with them at this point. Um, That's got to go. And this is what I this is why I like I'm a hard stand for uh for origin because he was the one who was like no you can't get rid of james because uh it was written by the brother of jesus you know there was a james who was the brother of jesus and we all know that that's not true but um i love that he was like can't argue with the brother of jesus and that's how he keeps it in i love it so much I, i have so much respect it's amazing to me how much uh how political the bible is and but people don't you know what I'm saying? How, how people, yes. people perceive the Bible. In my mind, it's almost like people, when, by people I'm talking about church folk, <laughs> um, perceive the Bible more like an encyclopedia instead of a, a novel, which, mean, uh-huh. which means they take everything to be literal fact and, um, you know, versus something that has, uh, that can you can imagine it being anything different than it is or, you know, that kind of thing. Or you can have questions or ask questions. It's all like, it's infallible. It's the word of God, da, 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 like, you know, like an encyclopedia, like a dictionary. Um, and I just, just think it's interesting how political that whole process was, even down to 
the ordering of the books. I was listening to Katie. I was like, did they, they thought that was more important. So they put Matthew, Mark, and they like Matthew better. So they, you know, it's just it, it, how much, how much people, how much people things, people stuff is involved with a book that's supposed to be breathed, God breathe. It's so interesting to me. And I think mm. it, it, that's very true. And I think recognizing that political, but when I say political, uh, I mean, it's sort of like, in other words, between different, again, we talk about varieties and pluralities of Bible. There were Bibles um, or canons. Uh, there were also Christianities, you know, and early on there were different sects of Christianity, different, um, you know, so the, what we call typically the church fathers, I just mentioned Irenaeus and Origen and, you know, Justin Martyr and all those guys, Tertullian, um, they were all of a certain stripe. You know, they were kind of in a certain kind of brand of Christianity, which they kind of won. They won the day. And so they're the ones that were held up as like, well, they were right. They were the right ones. And everybody else were the heretics and the weirdos. Well, but the other ones called themselves Christians. Um, <laughs> the ones who didn't agree with, you know, Origen or Irenaeus or those guys on everything. And they they, they would say, no, we're Christians and we're following the, the scriptures and we're, we're following Jesus. Um, so there were varieties of those. And so that's to me where the politics came in was, um, you have people like Valentinus and uh, and others that we don't know a lot about because they were kind of, you know, pushed to the side. And well, we don't need, we don't want them. Don't read them. Don't listen to them. We know we know about most of them in the negative from those other, you know, church fathers. That yeah, don't don't read that. Don't listen to that. And so that was there was kind of a political struggle along those lines. I think where um, when we got to the Council of Nicaea and and what came after. Um, there was a bit of, of a feeling, I think, that for, for some of those church fathers, like Athanasius and others, like, this is our chance. We need to, like, once and for all settle this internal struggle, that, you know, we're right and they're not. The, the ones, that, the books that we consider right are right and maybe the other ones aren't aren't so good. Uh, so there was a bit of that. And um, I think it definitely played into the process. The one other thing I think is really interesting is they weren't just fighting over which books were in there. They were also having a lot of the same fights that we're having. Oh, well, parallel fights to the ones that we have now, right? Yes. Which is, oh, the text so clearly says X. No, the text so clearly says Y. Mm -hmm. I, I, put a, I put a version of uh, 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 the, the Nestorian uh, controversy to the the song uh, Istanbul was Constantinople, which is why I remember who Nestorius <laughs> was. And like, he was a hard stand against the Theotokos position. So there was this, like this battle over when we talk about Mary, was she the bearer of God? Was she the mother of God? Like, was she just this random vessel or was she the biological mother? Um, which different people were reading the same texts and being like, no, 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 no. She was one. No, she was the other. And today we're like, who cares? Yeah. It doesn't matter because we've embraced this whole like Jesus was fully human and fully divine um, narrative. And that was also up for debate, right? Like that was, you know, we'll talk about the Gnostics next week. But I'm fascinated by the fact that like people were battling like fiercely over like very fine tuned analysis of the text about stuff we don't care about now but we're doing the same thing with other thing with other parts of the scripture and saying, Oh, clearly it says X. No, clearly it says Y. Yeah. So uh, thank you for saying that because like, that's what I noticed too, when I was going back and reading some of the, um, the back and forth argumentation between like Irenaeus and some of the followers of Valentinus. And we're going to get into this more next week, but our next episode, but, um, but it was the same kind of argument. It was like, 
I, I, it was almost like I could change the names. It was like, this is an argument between like John MacArthur and Rob Bell or like, cause one was arguing for like, no God, it's experiential. It's no, or maybe Richard Rohr or something like, it's like, no, no, no. Well, it's more about knowing God, experiencing God in that sense, like of knowing God. And Irenaeus was like, no, no, no. It's about having this right connection and having the right theology and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, I felt like I was watching a, a conservative evangelical and a, and a, <laughs> a liberal Protestant, uh, I mean, a, a progressive Christian having, and so it's like, this kind of thing has been going on literally all from the beginning, uh, these kind of arguments and struggles, and they haven't gone away. And that's, that's in a way, it's comforting. Like, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of thing. It's even going on in the scripture. I'm trying to think of um, w- what book it is where um, I want either Paul or Peter, somebody confronted somebody like, hey, yeah. y'all two-faced. Because when yeah, y'all with Paul. them, you talking about the circumcision, da, da, da. And when y'all with them, now either it's faith or what's it going to be? What y'all going to do? Y- y'all yep. know what scripture I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. It's an Acts. Yeah. Paul confronts okay. Peter and has a big. Uh... And he says, you know, he basically telling them, you know, y'all on that bullshit. You know, <laughs> either, either, either it's faith or or it's the circumcision. Pick one. Pick a side. Pick, pick either it's the law or, you know what I'm saying? And yep. they're even having that debate in the scripture. There's another one too. Yes. You know, I'm out of practice with uh, when I was pastoring, I was always in the scripture, but I'm out of practice with it now. But there's another one where, who, who was it that was traveling together? Was it Matthew and Bartholomew? Somebody was traveling together and they had a disagreement and they're like, we're going to agree to disagree. You're going to go your way and I'm going to go out. You do ministry how you want to do. I'm going to do how I want. Who was that? That's right. That was also Paul, right? And Barnabas? Barnabas, Barnabas, and they was like, they came together, they came back together another time, right? But there was a time, and it's amazing to me how we could see that happen in the scripture, but somehow it's not supposed to happen now. It happened then, why it can't happen now? You know, they literally is like, this is where I'm going to do ministry, this is where you're going to do ministry, look, get out my face. You go that way. Go that way. I'm going to go this way. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, so it it happened then. I don't know why people can't wrap their heads around the fact that it's happening now and that I think it's part of the process mm-hmm. of just understanding, trying to wrap your uh, debate and discussion. And I don't like arguing and getting angry and being belligerent and flipping that. I, I don't like that. And yeah, I don't think God likes that either. Um, but debate and discussion and, it, you know, come let us reason together. I think that's all part parcel of the process of trying to wrap our our very finite selves around an infinite God, if you believe, or infinite possibility of God. And we have to have these debates and these discussions in order to try to get there. That's my mind. So um, speaking of Nicaea, which gets a kind of bad rap for, for Bible stuff. Uh, I have actually, I've been there to the modern town oh, of wow. Iznik. Yeah, which was pretty cool, but there's like not much left of the ancient council. As, as I recall, there's like one little ruins where, where maybe some of the council was held. Um, but it's the re- that's also the region of uh, Turkey that uh, I know we've just seen this horrible, devastating earthquake that just hit. But there was another earthquake in this region in 1999, which is really far away from the Gaziantep uh, near Syria. Um, but yeah, I did get to go there and it was gorgeous and uh, meet, got to meet some of the some of the women there. So it was fun to be in that place of Christian history. 
um, disputed as that history may be. But, you know, one thing I hear a lot is like, oh, well, like, no, Nicaea ruined everything. That's when they they started limiting all these books and all these books were hidden and we, we don't have access to them. So I want to like maybe take a moment to demythologize kind of what happened at Nicaea. This is not my century. It's not my area of expertise. So this is a lot of um, hard scrabble, remembering stuff from 20 years ago, and then some Google searches. Um, Although which... don't demythologize too much, because we get to talk about the Gnostics next week. That's right. Oh, awesome. Okay, cool. Um, but basically, so Nicaea was convened by the Emperor Constantine. But uh, in all of our little research and prepping for this, it seems like we've kind of come to it, not a conclusion, but not much was really decided about the Bible there. The council was convened to dispute Arianism, mm -hmm. to dispute a heresy. Um, and, and Constantine was, of course, the first. He did legalize Christianity across the Roman Empire with some fairly devastating effects. Um, so I'm not trying to say Constantine was a nice guy. He was kind of a jackass. Um, no, no doubt about that. But this was a council that was convened over probably several years and was to dispute to get rid of or to declare Arianism to be a heresy. And like from the series of councils at Nicaea, we do get the Nicene Creed, um, which yeah. I never recite. And we can see no. within the Nicene Creed, <laughs> we can see within the Nicene Creed though, that they weren't in agreement because like all these early creeds have these ridiculous statements like Jesus is hundred percent human. And Jesus is 100% God. And both of those things can't be logistically true. <laughs> so they couldn't agree. Right. So they would put both statements in. Yeah. They weren't mathematical geniuses there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were kind of like some of the whole, but like about, it seems like they had a presumed assumption about books that would become canon. Right. Right. Like they're all quoting gospels. They're all quoting Paul, but they're not. It doesn't seem like they're really making major decisions. That's right. In yeah. Nicaea. Uh, yeah. And uh, did we mention this last time that um, it seems like so Athanasius was a big dude uh, or a church father who he was part of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, but like you said, he th that's not what they talked about. But um, a little after that Council of Nicaea, Athanasius did write a, in what's called the Easter letter in 367 AD. Um, and in that letter he did, that's, that's kind of where, so it wasn't Nicaea, but it seems like it was Athanasius. Um, sort well, of Athanasius giving, is saying what everyone already believed. Well, not everyone. Right? He's not creating the count, but he's not creating the canon. Well, so again, maybe we'll get into this next week, but yeah. um, the Nag Hammadi library was most likely buried by a local seminary a Christian seminary that buried them because of Athanasius's letter. Cause it seems like they were buried about that time. Um, but we'll get into that, I guess, when we get into the whole, all that stuff. Right. Yeah, so I guess to, what I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is Athanasius, Athanasius is not a, he's not a lone wolf no, saying no, no. this I'm, is the canon and I'm declaring it. That. So he's saying what a right. whole bunch of people already agreed to. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone, saying, but a yeah, lot of Athanasius people. But not unanimously. <laughs> what was that December? I was just saying try try saying Athanasius five times fast. But y'all might have to y'all might have to put a bibliography or something together for folks to click on and research following up this this uh, particular episode. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to take in and so much to learn. I thought I was thinking of something on why you were you both were talking and something um Katie earlier said gave the definition of canon as a standard of measurement. And um 
<laughs> and I was thinking the other day, um, I went to the, to Joanne's to get some fabric to wrap, to make a wrap for my head. And I was trying to, um, see how much did I need? And you're probably like, where is she going with this? But anyways, I was trying to see how much did I need? And I said, well, how much does yard look like? Let me see what does a yard look like? And I was getting to, I was going to have white and gold for a very special occasion. And, um, she laid it out a yard and I'm thinking of this in my mind when you're saying, um, a cannon as a, a unit, a measurement, you know, a standard. And she laid it out a yard and, um, and I, as she went, I said, I thought I needed three yards, but as she went, I, I realized I only needed two. And I said, let me see that. Let me hold that for a second. And I wrapped it around my head as if I was going to, what I'm going to intend to do with it. And I realized I only need two yards. I don't need three. And uh, just bear with me with this analogy. Okay. <laughs> and and then I got another material, which was sheer and it was gold. This other material was heavy, like really heavy type linen and white. And when I'm thinking about this and why it's making me think about this is the measurement never changes, but the fabric changed all in the store. There are thousands um, of fabrics and people are coming there to use them for different things. Um, but the measurement itself does not change. Furthermore, um, the, the, the length and the width of the fabric are different. <laughs> the the yardage is only the only the length only um but it went out you know widthwise in different lengths for these things and why am i thinking about that when i think about the scriptures and i think about what we want to call the word of god or the bible the measurement is uh what is it is, is it static that changes <laughs> i'm trying to think of my words static back to doesn't school. Change. static, static doesn't, doesn't change what's the word that I don't know. There's a, there's another word, you know, I'm trying to get back to my schooling on that. Fluid? Fluid? It, it, fluid is, fluid is a, a word that works. It's not the scientific word I was looking for, but it's a word that works. Um, and I'm thinking about this canon is not, it's based on whoever's, whoever's doing the measuring. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's, what's interesting about this whole thing. Um, that the canon is not set. If it were, there would be 66 books in every version of the Bible. Uh-huh. If it were, all the books in any Bible would be in every book of the Bible. And it's just interesting to me that the canon is just based on the era, based on the culture, based on the people, based on the translators, based on whoever. But it's not, you know, there's a measurement there, but what are we measuring? Morality? What are we measuring? What is it measuring? What's yeah. right, what deserves to be in there at any given time? And who says it doesn't deserve to be in there? Who who, who didn't like the book of James because it was too Jewish? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. It's interesting to me. So my, that's where my mind is going. And everybody's going to use that cloth in different ways. <laughs> yep. Well, and like. it's also occurring to me, December, that um, Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, put a lot of emphasis on scripture. Whereas other Christian traditions don't put as much emphasis on on scripture, right? So Protestants have this only scripture and has everything has to be confirmed in scriptures. Honestly, Catholics and Orthodox, not that they don't care, but they're like, we also have tradition. We also like for Orthodox, they see scripture as the written testimony, but they see icons as the visual testimony. Equally important. And so there's there's a lot of different ways to just sort of be in relationship to God that's not the Bible for other non-Protestants mm-hmm. who like they, they would find the whole sort of evangelical kind of like 
people deconstructing about the Bible, it just doesn't happen as much, not nearly as much or in the same way for Catholics because they're very used to different sources of revelation. I heard uh, David Jeremiah the other day. Um, I was listening to something else and YouTube decided I needed to see a two hour commercial on with a sermon of David Jeremiah in the middle of what I was watching. And I let it play for a while because I was busy doing something else. And he said, you don't have, there's no relationship with God apart from the Bible. Uh-huh. I was like, the bullshit. It, as soon as he said that, I, I, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? The Bible, as we have it, didn't exist for the folks that did have a relationship with Christ. That, not in the right. form that we have it. So how is it that now we can't have a, a relationship with Christ apart from it? That doesn't make any damn sense. But I'm sure everybody in the room agreed with him. And there's oh, yeah. so many that do. No, there's lots of them that do. Yeah, actually. And then that's a, that's the, the like a lot of Christians today have a really um, strong relationship with the Bible and, and not so much with, with the spirit the or with, God with Christ. Of the Bible. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and to me, that's, it's, it's evident when they say that things like that, like the only way to know anything about God or anything about Jesus is from the Bible. It's like, well, understand when you talk that way, I know they don't think this and they would never, they would never agree to this, but in a sense, what you're saying is like, to me, they're like denying the resurrection. Like Christ is not alive because like, like for example, the only way, if I wanted to know something about Abraham Lincoln, well, he's dead. So the only way I'm ever going to know anything about him, I can read his speeches. I can read some of his letters. I can maybe read books written by other people who, who knew him and they can tell me about him or read, you know, history about his life, but that's it. Those are my options because he's dead. That's the only way I could ever know Abraham Lincoln. And so when you talk like to, about Christ like that, the only way you can know Christ is reading the Bible. Like, oh, so he's dead. I can't actually have a connection spiritually with Christ. I, and I know, again, they don't think that, but it, to me, that's how it comes across to me. It's like, no, I, I think, like you said, there were there's several hundred years when Christians didn't have a anything like a Bible, didn't own copies. They couldn't even read many of them. So, mm-hmm. and yet they, that's probably actually, ironically, the most productive and dynamic period of growth in the Christian in the in the Christian uh, history is during that phase of time where they didn't they couldn't go hold on a minute let's let's look it up what does the Bible say right no they were just being led by the Spirit of God and they were like let's go here let's do this let's you know and I think yeah that's that's a really good point there it's interesting because I find myself the most curious about how the Bible got put together in light of what was going on contextually at the time. Because once I realized, oh, the canon didn't just magically appear, I started thinking, well, what was the logic behind how it got shaped? And I think y'all know that I tend to look at everything through the lens of liberation. And so I found myself thinking about, you know, uh, Irish people were in solidarity with black people until they realized they could benefit from proximity to whiteness. Similarly, there were a lot of moments early on in Christianity as the canon was being shaped, as the books were still being formalized, when Christian proximity to Judaism made sense because of how they were persecuted versus did they want to keep distance from each other because they wanted uh, to avoid persecution. And I think that that had something to do with the shaping the Bible. Katie and Keith, you know a lot more about this than I do, but I find that not the only lens, but a really interesting one uh, when we look at how the canon was shaped, how the books 
got formalized because there were, you know, sometimes differences between uh, different versions, different copies of them. So I don't know if there's much. So what I want to say is I am not an expert on this. And a lot of the books about how the canon was formed or how the Bible was formed are really not written for lay people. So I wanted to give a very brief shout out to the book, Whose Bible Is It? by Yaroslav Pelikan. He was, he's normally, or was normally, I think he's still alive, but I could be wrong. He might've died by now because he was old when I read him. Um, but he usually writes for an academic audience, but the the book, Whose Bible Is It Any, any Way? Any, whose Bible Is It? Question mark, sorry. Um, is a really accessible, lay-friendly book that I think gives some really good context to the formation of the Hebrew... That's right. I read it. Thank you. He passed away in 2006. Um, the The book whose Bible is it is his way of saying, here's how the Hebrew Bible was formed in the Hebrew translation and the Greek translation. Here's how some of the Hebrew Bible books that we debate whether they should be in or not uh, got in. Here's how. And I think it's really fascinating stuff, especially if we have just learned um that the Bible didn't just magically come into being and we're curious about how that's a particular text that I think is super helpful in engaging that question. I don't know if you all have thoughts um, on where people can turn if they want to know more as well. Yeah. There's a lot of bad books books out there. So yeah, there's no, that's true. And see growing up evangelical, I, I remember running across some very, very conservative books about, you know, uh, I can't remember the titles, but there were, there were books out there. I used to work at a Christian bookstore. So I, you know, we, we stocked them on the shelves. So I would see these books about basically this, like the miraculous story of how God, you know, divinely protected his canon and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's from that perspective. And so it's, it's very, uh, it's like, it's, it's not, it's ignoring some of the nuances. And so that stuff I wouldn't recommend, but, um, I know some of us might have uh, recommendations. One book I like, but I know some people don't. Um, but it, I just say when I read it at the time that I read it, this has been like seven or eight years ago, uh, someone sent it to me and I read it and it blew my mind. Um, that's uh, who wrote the Bible by Richard Elliott Friedman. And I think it takes the documentary argument, which many people, many scholars today don't, um, don't subscribe to, but uh, nonetheless, when I read it, it was new to me and uh, it was, it opened my eyes a lot about, it's more about on the Hebrew canon. Um, and how it was compiled, and uh, it's and it's very well written. It's written like a mystery novel. It's really, really good. Mm. I just love the fact that there's so many resources out there. Um, there's so much more to know. Um, every time I look in at this at this as a uh, work, uh, a collective work, there's so there's so much more to know. I've learned just so much in this the last um, thirty minutes or so just listening. And, you know, it's amazing to me, the different translations, the different cultures, the different eras, the different interpretations, why they interpreted the way they did, you know, where the scripture said, um, train up a man in the way that he should go. So when he go down, he will not depart from it or whatever Proverbs 22, six says, you know what I'm saying? Um, but just whatever, whatever, it's amazing to me how, how, how far you can go, um, how, how wide you can go with this thing. And um, how much more there is to know. Just when you think you know something, you don't. And so that's where I'm at with the word. That's where I'm at with God in general. Just when I think I know something, 
I don't. And there's so much more to learn and to know. And listen, if you want to learn and know more about Heretic Happy Hour, about all these Bibles, about all these translations and transcriptions and misinterpretations and misrepresentations or whatever we're going through, um, visit heretichappyhour.com, which is our very wonderful, interesting, and outdated website that's going to be updated soon. But you should go check it out at www.heretichappyhour.com. <laughs> We want you to go read one of these books and then come to our Facebook group, which is Heresy After Hours. It's for all heretics and all stages of deconstruction, and you can post about it there. Uh, I'll throw in a book for good measure, which is not specifically about the canon, but new ways to think about the Bible and a little bit about canon in there, which is Marcus Borg reading the Bible again for the first time. Yes. So read that and then come post about it in Heresy After Hours. That's a great recommendation too, thanks. Uh, love me some Marcus Borg. Oh, man. Yeah, he's the guy. Uh, also, um, for those of you who financially support this podcast, we want to just take a moment and say thank you very much. It means so much to us. We love you. And um, we are we are excited to be able to record bonus content for you and put it up there on the Patreon page. If you don't support us yet, would you please go over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. Join up. We even have some absolutions in there um, You know, as a, as a thank you, as well as some other content. And you'll get... In, uh, access to our um, Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group, which is available exclusively to our patrons. So go over there and check that out. The reviews on iTunes and Apple Podcasts are our version of the canon. They are how you leave a legacy for those who come after us to learn what we were. So not only does rating and reviewing on iTunes help connect us uh, to connect people like you to people like us, but it is how you contribute to our canon. Ooh, that was I, I was doing nice. my best to tie it in. How, <laughs> how long ago did you write that, Sean? Did you just come up with that? or did you No, I just made that, that up because uh, I was so impressed with December's transition, I felt like I needed to up my level a little. <laughs> you did smooth. Damn smooth. <laughs> I'm, I'm in awe of all of you. You did a wonderful job transitioning there. Just boom, boom, boom. I, I probably screwed it up. But that was no, we all killed it. It was great. <laughs> uh.